Welcome to the Procure Strategy Podcast. Here, we talk about practical strategies and tips that lead to creating stronger supply chains and driving results. Here is your host, Louis Bastone. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Louis Bastone. I hope everybody is having a good year so far. And I am excited to be here today to talk with you about contract terms and conditions. So the thing about being a procurement professional is something that a lot of us have an issue with as far as contracting goes, is we generally aren't taught what all the contract terms and conditions mean in a general contract template that we would normally see. This means that we rely on legal to understand these things. And the issue with that is that legal, of course, a great resource for any company to have, they really want a contract to be a seatbelt, which is a good thing because that's not what we look at a contract as. As a procurement professional, we want a contract to be a performance-driven document that drives results. So when we team up with legal, it can be good because legal is looking at the perspective of let's create a seatbelt and let's mitigate as much risk as possible. But sometimes I believe the issue that you run into if a procurement professional doesn't understand terms and conditions, some of the terms of the contract may not necessarily apply to the application of what we are actually buying. And also, if a procurement professional doesn't understand terms and conditions, it will significantly increase contracting lead time. And that's something that I think a lot of us have issues with on our day to day. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through 15 of the most recognizable terms and conditions that you will see on a contract. I'll give you what typically you'll see a supplier's position would be, and then I will give you what the buyer's position should be on these. And then at the end, what I'm going to do is give three tips that will help shorten contract lead time as well as control things like rogue spending and making sure that contracts don't get overspent without the procurement professional knowing. After today, what I think the goal of a lot of the folks listening should be is when we get a contract markup from a supplier, we'll be able to understand what the supplier is actually sending back to us. And then we can make recommendations before we send the contract back to legal for review. This will help legal get any questions answered before they come back and ask us. And this will also help legal understand some of the things that we are trying to do. I've learned that this really does shorten contract lead time quite a bit, which is a huge deal in our industry, because to me, that is a lot of the time one of the biggest lead time items when we're working on sourcing something. So let's get right into it with the terms and conditions that we're going to be going over today, which is definitions. Now, what that means is any terms that are subject to interpretation should be defined in this contract. 
after this is done, those terms should have the first letter capitalized to establish definition. Now, a lot of the times in supplier contracts, what we'll see is you can use the word supplier or you can use the word company or you can use the actual supplier's name, but we just have to establish which we are going to use throughout the contract to make sure that we have the definition. Now, a lot of the time the supplier's position on this is to define important terms possibly to their benefit, but our position should always be to ensure all terms that are open to debate are correctly defined. So what we need to do is make sure that once we define a term under definitions, that throughout the contract, the first letter is always capitalized and that it's always applicable to what we're talking about and makes sense. The second term that we're going to talk about is term of agreement. Now, all this really means is the start date and the finish date of the agreement. And usually the supplier's position on this one is to have a long-term agreement, of course, because they want our money over a longer amount of years. Now, our position needs to be the right-term agreement with cancellation rights, such as cancellation for breach of contract at the very least. And you might want to go further and call for a cancellation of convenience clause, which means if anything comes up and we need to cancel, we just need to let the supplier know in the amount of time agreed upon that we're canceling the contract. Then the next contract term and condition that we're going to talk about is payment. So this is when the payment clock starts. And usually the supplier will want the clock to start right when they send an invoice and the clock will stop when they receive payment. And they will normally ask for net 30 payment terms in the United States. Now, the buyer's position to this should normally be that the clock starts upon receipt of an acceptable invoice by accounts payable, and the clock ends upon payment transmission by accounts payable. And we should really be working toward going to net 60 plus discount options for early payments. Net 30 has been a standard for a very long time, but when net 30 was a standard, a lot of the time that's when paper invoicing was still going on. And a lot of the time paper invoicing happened through snail mail. In this day and age, invoicing happens much quicker because most of the time it's electronic, which means that a lot of the time, since the invoicing process is faster, we should be trying to get better payment term results so we can leverage the best weighted average cost of capital. And that definitely keeps finance happy. The next term that we're going to talk about is termination. So there's two types of termination. Termination for cause, which means a termination may only happen due to predefined reasons laid out in the contract and termination for convenience, which may be used for any reason with written notice laid out in the contract. So what the supplier's position will normally be on this is to have a bilateral termination for cause only. The reason why they want this is they want 
to be able to have a say in if this contract can get terminated no matter what. Our position normally is that we want a unilateral termination for convenience. And we also want a unilateral termination for cause to minimal financial exposure. This would also mean that we would want a bilateral exception only for repeated lack of payment. So what that means is that we would be able to terminate a contract with them for convenience, whether it be a 30, 60 or 90 day notification period that we would have to give them. And we would also be able to terminate for cause, which means that if they breach the contract, we're allowed to terminate the contract and they are allowed to terminate the contract. But we also have to agree if there's repeated lack of payment. The next term that we'll be talking about is indemnification. Now, what indemnification is, is it means to hold harmless. So essentially it is one party agreeing to hold another harmless for certain specified claims, losses, or damages. Now this needs to be very clear on who is identifying who and what is being indemnified. So for example, personal injury, property damage, IP infringement, product effects, attorney and cost of defense or economic loss. Is there a monetary limitation on the extent? And the goal of this is not to shift as much liability onto the other party as possible. The goal is to make the right parties responsible for their actions. So an example is if we were hiring a company that came onto our site and they ended up running into the wall with a truck. Well, of course, they should be held responsible for that. So that's something that you, that's something that would be covered in an indemnification clause. And the supplier's position normally is to limit indemnification or to introduce a limitation of liability on said indemnification, which essentially just gives it a cap. And the buyer's position is indemnification language that's in place that protects against claims by third parties with full risk shifting to the supplier for things they should be responsible for. The next thing that we're going to talk about is force majeure. So what force majeure means is acts of God that impede on the ability for the supplier to perform their contractual obligations. Now, this can be many things like weather occurrences, uh, even the pandemic. COVID was being used very much so as a force majeure clause in a lot of suppliers' contracts. I'm sure a lot of you have seen that. Now, the supplier's position on this is for this to include things like labor strikes, late deliveries, bad weather, and material shortages. What our position is, is that it should really only be limited to true disasters that are 100% not in the supplier's control, such as war, hurricanes, tornadoes, and the clause should be bilateral. The buyer doesn't have to make payments to the supplier if we aren't getting what was expected from the supplier. The next clause that you'll see in a lot of contracts is headings. Now, what this is, 
is it normally just states that the headings for each clause have no legal value. So what you'll see suppliers do sometimes is have pleasant or misleading headings and then the actual details underneath that heading are pretty undesirable to us. Now, what our position needs to be is having headings that accurately describe the clause contents within it. The next thing that we're going to talk about is entire agreement. Now, all that means is this contract is the entire agreement and supersedes all other discussions and correspondence. The reason why we want to do this is because we want this contract to override any other terms and conditions that are standard by either us or by the supplier. Another term that you'll see in a lot of contracts is an independent contractor clause. Now, what that means is that the agreement won't create an employee-employer relationship between parties. What this does is it assists in avoiding co-employment lawsuits. This, of course, is very helpful in a lot of situations where you'll be working with suppliers that will be on your site. It needs to be knowing that there's a line drawn between the fact that that's the supplier's employee and not our company's direct employee. The next clause, and a very important one, is liquidated damages. Now, what this is, is it's pre-negotiated damages for predictable occurrences. For example, something like late deliveries of an ingredient that we would need for manufacturing. Now, the supplier's position is normally to negotiate damages after the breach has occurred, if at all. And what we want to do is make sure that liquidated damages are in place for every predictable potential breach that could happen ahead of time in the contract before it gets signed. Something that I want to note quickly about this is we do not want to use the word penalty in the language at all when it comes to liquidated damages. We want to use language such as price reduction of X percent if an item is delivered late. The reason for this is because in some courts in the U.S., if you use the word penalty, they may interpret it the wrong way as sometimes the arguments have been, if there is no reward for doing something, then there should not be a penalty for doing it. So you need to be very specific in what happens if there is a breach of contract. The next term that you would see, which goes hand in hand with liquidated damages, is direct and consequential damages. Now, direct damages are for events that happen within close time and proximity to an event causing damages and consequential damages are for results due to an event, but they occur following the actual event, but not in similar time or limited to a location. So the supplier's position normally for this is to limit the value of the contract and consequential damages are excluded altogether. As a buyer, we can stay silent about this in the contract as if nothing is stated otherwise, we have full protection through the law. But we also want to make sure that we do not agree to a limitation of liability clause 
because normally what companies are scared of is lost profits being part of consequential damages. A red flag that you'll see sometimes is if a supplier does not ask for limitation of liability but wants insurance requirements lowered, we may be in a situation where the insurance levels are acting as a de facto limitation of liability. So an example of direct and consequential damages that I could give is, let's say that a $1,000 electrical surge device on a manufacturing floor malfunctions and becomes inoperative. Now, let's say that the damage that this causes is it damaged a lot of the manufacturing equipment that's on the floor and it halted production for one week. The manufacturing repairs cost $50,000. The loft profit cost $100,000. The labor cost to clean up the manufacturing floor cost $1,300. The direct damages in this situation is $50,000 in manufacturing repairs and the $1,300 for cleanup. And the consequential damages would be that $100,000 in lost profit. Now, I want us all to remember that the goal of this mechanism is to not make additional money from the supplier. It is to make sure that if something goes wrong, this clause makes us complete and whole again. The next clause that I would like to talk about is the most favored customer cause. Now, what this does is it will save procurement a lot of time in benchmarking and cost modeling because the most favored customer clause indicates that no other customer is getting a better price. There are two types of most favored customer clauses. One is independent of volumes and the other one is of like volumes. The supplier's position normally is that the MFC clause is not present in the contract at all. And a second choice that they would have is the MFC clause for like volumes and no audit rights on long lead times on audit notice along with ambiguous verbiage that allows the supplier pricing leeway. As a buyer, what we want in this clause is we want MFC pricing independent of volume. We also want audit rights to include that they must be done with reasonable notice. And something additionally to note is that we don't want a specific percentage in the MFC clause as that actually can be illegal in certain countries. The supplier may not be asked to exceed GSA pricing, which is the pricing that they would give to the government, which is normally the lowest possible pricing, but they can match that pricing. The MFC clause can be broken down into raw materials if custom parts are being purchased. So if it's a very specialty product, you might just want an MFC clause at the raw materials level, not at the finished product. Or so. The next thing I want to talk about is warranty. Now, a warranty simply promises that something is true. There are two types of warranty. An express warranty, which is when terms are expressively written in the contract, and an implied warranty, which is not written but implied. For example, a toaster should toast and a car should drive. The supplier's position on warranty generally is to have a warranty that is limited by time, scope, incidental expenditure, and remedy options. What we want as buyers is to have a customized warranty that spells out exactly what is provided 
who will pay, and how breach of warranty will be remedied. This should include supplier response time, who pays for the incidental expenses, and total time frame for closure. An example of a bad warranty is supplier warrants that this equipment will be in good working condition for three years. If the product should fail for any reason, supplier will make best efforts to remedy. The issue with this clause is that there's not many specifics. We don't know what good working order means, and we don't know what best efforts mean. What we want in a warranty is to be very specific on if something goes wrong, what will be the remedy, and what will be the time frame of the remedy, and who will be paying for that remedy. Another clause that you'll see in a contract is new developments. Now, what that means is it covers intellectual property ownership for any new developments that transpire as a result of the contract. So generally, the supplier's position is that there's no IP clause or supplier-friendly IP clause, such as the buyer pays for the IP and the supplier gets to keep it and use it. And the supplier, of course, will want ownership of the previously developed technologies that they had before they started working with us. Now, our position should be that if we as the customer pay for the IP, we get to keep it, or we get a steep discount or royalty if we allow the supplier to use that new development at other customer sites. The last clause that I'm going to talk about today is the confidentiality publicity clause. Now, this describes in what manners both contents and the existence of the agreement may be disclosed to third parties. The supplier's position is generally to freely use the buyer's name in advertising and customer presentations. Now, what our position needs to be as buyers is to control whether or not the name can be used in advertising and negotiate price reductions if so. All confidential information is transmitted via our firm's corporate non-disclosure document process as well. So that is 15 of some very likely terms and conditions that you'll see within a contract. And a lot of what suppliers want from those terms and conditions and things that we should be trying to get from those terms and conditions. Now, I mentioned in the beginning of the episode that I was going to give three tips to all of you in order to reduce contract lead time, control rogue purchasing, and to make sure that contracts aren't being overspent without us knowing. The first thing we want to do is send out a copy of our standard terms and conditions with our RFPs. And in those documents, when we include a scorecard, one of the criteria will be number of requested changes to standard contract. And we want to make that a major category. We would like to make that worth at least 20 to 25%. What this does is it slashes contract cycle time down because it makes the suppliers think about what they're going to need to actually redline instead of redlining everything that they want. 
even if it is not important to them. The second thing that you want to do is you want to have an agreement in the contract that states should supplier be contacted by any individual within buyer's company with intent to contract with supplier or purchase goods or services outside of the immediate scope of this agreement, supplier shall immediately contact buyer and advise him or her of this request and shall not proceed until such time that buyer provides express written approval. In such cases, buyer reserves the right to renegotiate the contract to reflect this increased business. What this does is it helps regulate rogue purchasing from our internal stakeholders without procurement knowing about it. Now, you also want another clause in the contract, and this clause is to assure that we're capturing any savings if there's overspend on the contract. Now, what this should read is, should the expenditures against this contract for the stated contract term exceed the agreed upon contract value of X, supplier shall immediately notify buyer and buyer reserves the right to renegotiate the contract accordingly. Supplier agrees that any new and lower pricing arrangements negotiated shall then be retroactive to cover any such expenditures by which the contract was overspent, and the supplier shall provide prompt reimbursement or credit to buyer at buyer's exclusive discretion. So those are a few ways that I've helped cut contract lead time for myself and ways that I've been able to control rogue spending from the internal business without procurement knowing about it. And also ways that we deal with overspent contracts because a lot of the time when contracts get overspent, we don't have the know-how to renegotiate that contract. And if a contract is getting overspent, we should know that it's happening so that we can leverage that additional spend with the supplier. So that is the 15 very common terms and conditions that you'll see within contracts and some ways to also help you cut lead time and just make sure that contracts are a performance-driven document for us procurement people and not just a seat belt that legal marks up and make sure that there's only risk being mitigated. Thank you all for listening. Please like, subscribe, and can't wait to talk to you next time. Thank you.